You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast. Today's episode is titled, The Singularity of Calling. Wise organizational leaders understand the singularity of personal calling. Accordingly, these leaders will seek to build organizations by utilizing people congruent with their individual vocational callings. This demonstrates faith that God pays for what He orders and holds leaders accountable to properly utilize people. Leaders should understand that if there is a genuine need for a person in a position, there will be divine provision. When management places a person in a position inconsistent with their calling, this is abuse. Consequently, as an act of faith, leaders understand that for every bona fide personnel need, there is a specific divine provision. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Singularity of Calling. Good morning. We want to continue this morning in our Bible study talking about the book of Galatians. Actually, this is the first session of the uh, book of Galatians, but it's our um, uh, continuation of the Bible study we've been doing now for uh, several years. This particular book is a very interesting book because of its relevance not only in the first century, but its relevance today. Today we live in a culture that is very, very prone to thinking that we can in some way work our way into acceptance with God. And so thinking that, uh, we tend to try to do what we call good works. And we think that if we do enough good works and when we pass from this existence and stand before the Lord, then how could he deny us access into his presence because we have been so good? Well, that thinking has been going on for a long time, and it is incorrect thinking. And this book, in part, is going to disabuse you of that thinking. So that's a big, big issue here in the book of Galatians. So let me uh, just take you through a quick um, overview of the book and uh, some introductory comments, and we'll try to cover the first five verses here this morning. Among scholars, there seems to be a general agreement that Paul wrote the epistle of Galatians. Paul apparently wrote the letter rather than dictating it, even though he may have had an eye problem. Nevertheless, the Galatians accepted him and his teaching contrary to the Roman view of physical maladies. The polytheistic Romans believed that physical defects were indications of divine judgment and avoided people deemed to be under divine wrath but they were willing to accept Paul for whatever reason, and that reason is unknown. Now, the date of the epistle is um, a little more challenging because determining dates of ancient documents is difficult and therefore largely speculative. Perhaps one clue is the subject matter of the first few chapters of the epistle, which is the same subject matter that was discussed at the first church council that occurred uh, in about 50 A.D., and that church council, uh, that at least the summary of that council, is recorded in Acts 15. And the topic of that council was whether or not the Gentiles who were accepting Christ had to basically practice Judaism to be Christians. And the conclusion of the council was no, they did not have to do that. So that's another way of saying the same thing that I just mentioned that thinking that good works in some way will contribute to your acceptability with God. So that's been a key theme. It's been around a long, long time and continues to be an issue in, in the lives and hearts of people today. Now, Galatians covers a lot of different things. Uh, so it starts out talking about the authority of the Apostle Paul. 
And that was very important because in the Roman culture, authority was everything. If you didn't have the authority to do something or say something, then you shouldn't be doing or saying that thing. Galatians talks about the nature of the gospel. And it talks about the nature of salvation. And again, we are, we'll find the, the, the three tenses of salvation here in this book. We come face to face with syncretism. Syncretism is the natural response that human beings give to differing perspectives. And that natural response is to try to synthesize them, to try to bring them together, to try to find common ground. And that is indeed what was, uh, what was being done between Judaism and Christianity. They were trying to put them together. And that's just a natural human response. But Paul makes it clear in this book that they, they, aren't, they don't go together. There's a connection, but you can't harmonize them in the sense that a Christian now is someone who is a, a Jew that has Christ. That's really not it. What it is is you have to recognize that Judaism represents a, a, a opportunity to be righteous with God based on human effort. Christianity says there's no way Judaism can work. So Christianity brings now Christ as our substitute to pay the penalty of our sin. And that's what makes it acceptable with God. So Christianity is basically salvation by grace. Judaism is salvation by works. And the natural tendency to try to put them together was there. And Paul is saying that's absolutely not allowed. It's out of bounds. It cannot be done. So that was a, that's a big part of this discussion here. Included in the discussion here in Galatians, there'll be this, you'll see biblical dualism showing up. Biblical dualism is true dualism as opposed to the error of Greek dualism. Greek dualism has been a very, very damaging uh, false doctrine that's, that's, uh, that's really been ministering to the Christian church for over 2,000 years. And we have to really be careful about it. At the same time, we need to recognize that God does have a biblical sense of dualism. For example, there is a grace versus works. There's individuals versus community. There's interdependence versus independence. There's flesh versus spirit. So you see a number of examples of biblical dualism will pop up as we go through the study in Galatians. Galatians is also a great place to see hermeneutical principles. There are several really interesting principles in this text. One is we'll see the importance of recognizing prescriptive text versus descriptive text. Uh, prescriptive texts are texts that are prescribing commands that everyone should follow. Descriptive texts are basically texts that describe something that happened and they're not intended to prescribe something to us. They're intended simply to describe something, to help us understand something. And then we'll see verbal inspiration and by implication plenary inspiration in this text. We'll see the use of allegory. And I'm going to talk to you today in some length about the importance of understanding singularities. There are a number of singularities in scripture that you need to pay attention to. And if you don't pay attention to them well, you could easily misconstrue some text. And we're going to see an example of that in Galatians chapter 1 this morning. As we go through the book, we'll also uh, be, be drawing your attention to many singularities in Scripture, like the singularity of God. There's only one God. The singularity of creation. There's only one creation. The singularity of the fall of man. There, isn't, there aren't multiple falls. There's one fall that's impacted the human race. The singularity of the Abrahamic promise that's fulfilled in Christ. 
the singularity of the Old Testament law, the singularity of Christ, the singularity of the cross, the singularity of the gospel. And you see on and on and on, there are multiple singularities in Scripture. And it's important to recognize and understand these to, to help you draw the right conclusions and interpret Scripture correctly. So as we jump into this, I, there, there's a number of things we could talk about in terms of the outline, but I'm going to hold off on that because I want to get into the exegesis to the theology and application here of, of, of chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So I'm not going to go through the outline with you at this point. Let's look at now at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It reads, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who along with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In an autocratic Roman Empire of the first century, authority was very important. Even Jesus' authority was questioned. There have been many occasions in Scripture where you see that. Jesus' authority was recognized in, in some occasions for as one who taught with authority. You see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was amazed when he encountered Roman centurion with a clear understanding of authority in Matthew 8. And when Jesus gave his 11 disciples the discipleship mandate, he began his imperative with a statement of his authority. You see that in Matthew 28, verse 20. Excuse me, verse 18. Likewise, Paul began his epistle to the Galatians by asserting his authority, and that his authority came not from man, or even through the mediating grace of man, but from Christ and the Father. Perhaps Paul was referring to his Damascus Road encounter with Christ. You may recall, while he was on his way to arrest professing Christians, he encountered Christ. A divine encounter, there was no human agency there, although when he was led into Damascus, he was sent, a human agent was sent to him to, to basically be agent of healing, healing so he could have his sight back again. It appears that Paul, Paul's initial work in introducing the Galatians to Christ, you know, was, was very, very grounded in his authority as an apostle. If he wasn't authoritative as an apostle, he really had nothing to say. And that's how they would view it. Without proper authority, Paul's message was in question. Therefore, he responded to the challenges of authority because the veracity of the message depended upon the veracity of his authority. And apparently, after Paul had established these churches, someone or some group of people snuck in and began to challenge Paul's authority. Paul stressed that his authority is not from man or mediated through man, but directly from God. Nevertheless, he's not denying human causality. He clearly understands that God uses people to accomplish his will. For example, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. But the gospel is delivered through the mediating grace of man. So note Paul's words in Romans 10, verses 13 and 14, which says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Clearly, clearly, preaching is an act of mediating grace to affect the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. In the Galatian epistle, Paul looked past human agency through mediating grace to the ultimate source of all authority, namely God himself, and affirmed that his authority as an apostle emanated from the Father and the Son. So Paul is trying to make this very clear that he has authority to speak to them and to declare the truth of the gospel because he's getting ready to correct them. Now in verse 3 we have the phrase, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is more the salutation. It's a word of blessing, grace and peace from the Father and from Christ. Paul speaks as a divinely dispatched emissary sent to convey the goodwill of God. The nuances of the word grace include gift and favor, loving kindness, that which affords pleasure and delight both physically and spiritually, and peace, which intimates a state of tranquility and harmony, concord, security, safety, and prosperity, both physically and spiritually. Clearly, Paul wishes for his readers to know his heart is with them because in the epistle, he will sternly rebuke them. And here are some examples of the comments he will make in the epistle. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls him a fool. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then in Galatians 4, verse 11, he more, more very stern words. He says, I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And finally, in verse 6, verse 7, he points out that, that they can be deceived. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will also he reap. And so he's issued some pretty stern warnings. And before he can issue these warnings, you know, he needs to convey to them that he really has a heart of care and concern and love for them. Then verses 4 and 5, read this. Who gave himself to us, this is referring to Christ, who gave himself for us to deliver us from the pre present age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul reminded his readers that the main objective of the gospel was to deliver God's people from the penalty of sin and death. The idea that Christ gave himself to effect salvation from the present evil age implies a fallen sinful human race, a righteous standard to which humans are held accountable, a redeemable human race that could not redeem itself, the possibility of an atonement that satisfied the just standard of God, and a meta-narrative connecting everything together. The gospel was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise given in, in Matthew, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12, verse, verse 3, and more fully explained in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. The gospel blessed all the nations of the world by providing a solution to the problem of sin and death. This is the ultimate sense of salvation. This salvation was accomplished by the substitutionary atonement of Christ in accordance with the will of God. Through the meta-narrative, Christ, the only human being who was not subject to the penalty of death, gave himself voluntarily to die on our behalf to deliver us from the bondage to sin and death that's systemic 
in humans because of the fall of man. The present evil age is a reminder of the fallen condition of humanity and therefore our desperate need of a savior. There was a beginning of this age and there will be an end. The third chapter of Genesis records the beginning and the third chapter from the end of the book of Revelations records the end. The first two chapters of Revelation record the, new, the, uh, the first two chapters of Genesis record the new, first creation and the last two chapters of Revelation record the new creation. In all this, the will of God was, is, and will be accomplished. Now let's look, look at some theological considerations here, things that we can see as we look at this text. First, let's talk about mediating grace. The common means for dispensing divine grace is through the mediation of another person or through physical provision. Another person would be someone like someone praying for you. Physical provision would be things like food and air and water. You know, as noted in the discipleship mandate, Jesus directed his apostles to be agents of mediating grace to his followers. That is, they were to teach and train the followers to obey the commands of Christ. But when those who profess Christ fail to live with integrity, they lose their standing as mediators of the grace of God. In Galatians, Paul addressed this church is as if he alone is standing true to the essence of the gospel message. In this scenario, Paul is consistent with the teaching of the Apostle John, who also wrote concerning false teachers. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, the Apostle John said this, But the anointing, referring to the Holy Spirit, you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as this anointing teaches you, about everything and is, is true and is no lie. The anointing is a reference to the Holy Spirit whose mission from Christ is in part to be the purveyor of truth. So in situations where those around us are fail to be true to the faith, we can always count on the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. We may feel alone, but we are never alone. While, while human instruments of mediating grace may fail us, the Holy Spirit will never fail us. Now, Paul, this all presumes truth. When you talk about what Paul is talking about in this book, he's talking about very clear truth, transcendent truth. So this is a key assumption of the book. Truth as revealed in Scripture, which is special revelation, and creation, general revelation, is not pluralistic. There is one universe, not a multiverse. And because reality is a singular universe, the universe contains a singular set of timeless universal principles, which I call TUP. TUP is therefore the same everywhere in the universe. Truth exists as a tra transcendent singularity defined by the one God who is the creator, sustainer, and ultimate end of the universe. Truth is not dependent upon individuals. Truth exists independent of individuals. This means that contrary to popular thinking today, truth is not a human construct. Rather, truth is totally dependent upon God, the creator, who defines all reality. Humans are therefore totally dependent upon God for their knowledge and wisdom, but God is not dependent upon humans for knowledge and wisdom. Notwithstanding the popular cultural claim that truth is a human construct, Humans tacitly, every day, assume Tup with little thought to their assumption or their logical inconsistency. 
For example, to develop an understanding of the universe, cosmologists, astrophysicists, and astronomers assume the existence of a, uni of a universe governed by TUP. Without TUP, scientists have no rational way of knowing anything about the universe. But rarely do scientists discuss their a priori assumption. TUP is simply an unspoken and unacknowledged given in scientific discussions because without TUP, there would be no scientific discussions. Now let's talk about hermeneutics for a second. One might read Paul's comments in Galatians 1.1 as support for independence as a Christian virtue. And just to remind you of Paul's words again, he said in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. A casual reader of the text might conclude that the apostle is promoting independence as a virtue, and therefore deny the truth of mediating grace. Such an interpretation is inconsistent with Scripture, which teaches the importance of interdependence. You can look at texts like Genesis 2.18 and 1 Corinthians 12, and furthermore, the mandate to train disciples that you see in the discipleship mandate of Matthew 28. How then might one understand Galatians 1.1. An alternative way to view Galatians 1.1 is as an example of a singularity. Singularities occur through circumstances in the meta-narrative and are people who play a unique role in the meta-narrative. Such people and our circumstances are not common. They are exceptions, not the norm. Some examples of singularities are, as I mentioned before, God is a singular creator. Creation was a singular event. Christ was and is a singular Savior. The gospel is a singular means of salvation. And the singularity of truth itself is noted above. To further illustrate singularities, consider more specifically the singularity of the gospel. The focus of Galatians 1 and 2 is this very point. That is the singularity of the gospel. So notice what Paul says in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, which we'll discuss more in depth next time, but go ahead and read it now. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, there is no other gospel. The gospel is singular. It is one. There is not another gospel, even though people might claim there is. Paul's assertion is clear. There is one, one gospel, and to think any other way is to be distorted and to be deceived. Paul's argument in Galatians is like the argument that John makes against false teachers. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 and 227, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now he's speaking, speaking, if you look in the context of this text, he's speaking of false teachers. Reading on, he says, but the anointing that you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you anything. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and he is true, and he's not no lie, just as it has teach, taught you, abide in him. Because of the singularity of truth, John asserts that Christians do not need the pseudo-truth of false teachers, 
We need to be independent of them. But he's not saying we need to be independent of true teachers. He's not saying that at all. That is a, a wrong understanding of the text. The fact that both the apostles Paul and John taught and wrote concerning the gospel suggests that they believed in interdependence and mediating grace. Furthermore, Paul's reference in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2 of Galatians is to the brothers here suggests that he puts value in being interdependent. If he didn't, have, didn't value interdependence, why is he relating to brothers? You don't need brothers if you are independent. The truth of singularities helps us understand the apostles' words and protect us from drawing a wrong conclusion. The true Christian virtue is not independence, but interdependence. And the correct sense of independence in Christianity is independence from error and those who promote error. Now, finally, on the theology part, I want to talk to you about apostles, and then we'll make a quick application, and we'll conclude. Another example of a singularity is the apostles of Christ, the men who were contemporaries who knew him, lived with him, and walked with him. These 11, of course, it started out 12, and Judas, of course, turned out to be a false apostle, so it wound up being 11. These 11 were the ones to whom he gave the discipleship mandate recorded in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. To these 11, the apostle Paul also was added. These apostles of Jesus had personal contact with him. When the New Testament was formed, a criterion of acceptance for the New Testament canon was some connection with the 11 apostles and or Paul. When these 12 died, they were no, there were no others like them. Hence, this group was singular. Notwithstanding this reality, there are still references to other apostles in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 4.11 and following, it, it, it lists the apostles as part of the fivefold uh, functions that are, should be happening in the body of Christ. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28, uh, speaks generically of apostles. And it asks the question rhetorically, are all apostles? And the rhetorical answer is, well, no, not all are, but the implications, some are. So there are obviously some apostles. These references imply that the apostolic function is an ongoing reality in the body of Christ. So Calvin noted these two types of apostles, the 12 who were singular, and then those gifted to be the apostles after them. In some ways, the two types of apostles were synonymous. Both were set out to establish Christian communities, clarify doctrine, correct error, and generally help oversee the work of building the ecclesia. The difference in the two types appears to be the singularity of the original 12 who were used by the Holy Spirit to establish Christianity and the requisite New Testament canon. These 12 men were uniquely qualified for the foundational role in the formation of the early church. And finally, just a quick application as we consider the teaching here. We have to guard the SLA truth, that is strategic life alignment truth of personal divine calling that is delivered through mediating grace. This singular truth is clearly expressed by the writer of the book of Hebrews who said, Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to chapter 11 and all the people of faith in the Old Testament times, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with race 
the, the endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we each have a race to run. The writer here is not talking to just certain ones. He's talking to those who profess Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Each one of us has a specific race. We've been assigned this race by God himself. The purpose of God's meta narrative then is to provide a transcendent meaning to life. It gives meaning and purpose to our race. Each person is a singularity in himself in the meta narrative and therefore each person's race is a singularity. The truth of the specific call of God on our lives must be guarded. Resist the false teachers, deny them, be independent of false teachers who deny the sovereign, intentional, strategic purpose of God. The world is full of people who deny the existence of a sovereign, intentional, strategic creator. Sadly, there are some in the Christian community that believe accordingly. For example, there is a project called the Theology of Work Project that is, uh, is in many ways a very, very good project. But they released a position paper uh, within the last year or so in which they denied personal calling for everyone. They contended that only certain people, which they would presume would be the important ones, had a divine ordained calling. In their consideration of scripture, they seem to miss the truth that's, ex that's expressed in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, and in other texts as well. And as a result, they deny the sovereign, intentional, strategic nature of God in all of his creation. This, is, this to me is a very strong example of unhealthy, non-biblical thinking that is found among people that are otherwise pretty sound thinkers. So the challenge for all of us is to be consistently vigilant and on our guard against both non-believers and professing Christians who deny the singularity of divine calling. Divine calling is here because we have a divine God, an intentional, strategic, sovereign God who creates everything for his purpose and therefore everything plays a role in his meta-narrative. There's no such thing as random in God's universe. Things don't just happen. They always happen with intent and purpose. That is the God that we serve. And may we have the grace to serve him well in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>